everyone. Welcome back. I'm Sonika Garcia. And I'm Brad Davidson. And this is Breaking the Code, a podcast series that debunks the myths about behavioral science, arming our listeners with the information they need to make sense of behavioral science and how to apply the discipline to our role as marketers. So today's episode is called Your Discussion Guide Sucks. And if the name didn't give it away, today we want to talk about research, specifically about discussion guides. Yes, the instrument that is at the heart of many research crimes. Exactly. And research is really at the heart of behavioral science because as marketers, our goal is to connect with people. And for that reason, research becomes very important. We can't really connect with people that we don't understand. So Brad and I both have a research experience. Brad, I'm really fascinated about your experience as a field researcher. And so I want to pick your brain about the way that we approach research in that first step really figuring out what we want to know and then figuring out how to go about actually uncovering it. So before we dive into our chat about discussion guides, let me briefly outline what I mean when I say discussion guide. So this is a guide, like the name suggests, with different topics and related questions, basically related to what we want to ask our respondents, making sure that these guides are comprehensive enough to meet our research objective. But we have to understand that discussion guides are just a tool. And with any tool, there are right ways to use it. And that's where I turn to you, Brad. Tell us what do we need to know about discussion guides and what about the way that we currently approach them makes it suck? The way we currently approach it does make me a little bit crazy. So just to take a step back, I am a field researcher by training like you, and uh, I'm actually a field linguist by training. And sometimes people ask me why I'm both a linguist and an anthropologist, and that's because there are certain fields of linguistics which are properly considered fields of anthropology. So going out and talking to people about their language or recording a dying language, those are all anthropology. And that is part of what I did, a large part of what I did. And so as you can imagine, a large focus of graduate training in the field, social sciences, specifically focusing on things like language is how do you interview people? How do you get data from them? And in an era of reciprocal study, right, where we're supposed to give things back, how do you make sure that you are uh, engaging them in a way that's positive for them as well? And so any of these sort of interviews or any of these projects where we set about trying to understand somebody like, for example, for a pitch, you, you do need to have some documentation of what you're trying to do and also a guide to help you talk through what you're trying to do. And so that that is a discussion guide or a topic guide or some kind of instrument. We call mm -hmm. these things research instruments in, in the biz, as it were. And uh, what we've done in, in this industry is taken the, the concept of a discussion guide and turned it into something that gives a very false sense of control that actually destroys most interviews. So that's really what we're gonna talk about today. Yeah, because I mean, the way that you were describing a discussion guide and that's the way that you know I understand it as well, it, it definitely seems like the intent and the goal of a discussion guide is 
important. Like we can't just go into research blind, not really knowing what we're going to talk about or have something for the moderator to sort of lean on. So I'm wondering, you know, can you go into a little bit more detail on what is wrong with the way that we currently approach discussion guides when we conduct research? And then what are some ways that we can we can make them better? Yeah, I'll, I'll take those in order. So the the first question, you know, w- what are we doing now that's so wrong? Obviously, when you present somebody with the idea that a discussion guide is there to make sure that you have good, replicable interviews, there's nothing wrong with that. When you say the discussion guide, make sure that the moderator covers off on the topics that we need them to cover off on, who, who could possibly argue with that? But but it's the way we implement them. And so what we've done is instead of becoming supports for discussion, we've turned them into tools for interrogation. And we basically then take all autonomy out of the moderator's hand for better or for worse, and and frankly, for worse. And so here's what I mean by that. So if we create a, a mechanism, a tool that allows people who aren't in the interview to say, well, these are the kinds of things I want to find out, that's positive. But if they then go one step further and script the entire discussion, then it's just an interrogation schedule. Then there's no chance for the moderator, for example, to react to an interesting answer. They're just trying to make good time through an interview that was handed to them by people who aren't there. And the real problem comes in overpacked discussion guide so that you know the whole 10 pounds of sugar for a five pound bag kind of thing where you get somebody on the phone for 45 minutes but you've routed the discussion guide to the clients and to everyone else on your our own internal team and you have 37 questions each one which has four subparts that you must get through that's not going to be much of an interview that's just going to be a verbal questionnaire sort of like you get when people bother you at home on saturday night and guess what you'll get the kind of answers that you get when people bother you at home on saturday night an overpacked discussion guide gives an illusion of control but what it does is it completely destroys the dynamics of the interview which which then makes the data we collect kind of suspect because What you want is interviews that reflect the natural thought processes of the interviewee, not which reflect our own sort of uh, construction of a guide Uh, with all, by the way, the the biases that are inherent in that as well, like an overconstructed guide also tends to display our own confirmation biases pretty strongly. So if we have 15 questions about the treatment algorithm, we're going to find out about the treatment algorithm, but it may be something entirely different that's of concern to the doctor. Mm-hmm. And maybe algorithm is yeah. not the right example, but you see what I'm saying. We're we're seeding the conversation throughout when we overbuild a guide. So that was the first mm-hmm. question, I believe. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So just so I'm understanding correctly, are you, are you saying that when we interrogate someone using a discussion guide that's packed with questions and we're sort of just blasting through these questions, we are not getting answers that are actually accurate to what the respondent is truly thinking or feeling? Yes. So you will always get an answer if you pay somebody, whether that answer reflects something that they actually believe or is useful are are different things. People generally will tell you what they believe, but -hmm. what people believe to be true and what is actually true are two different data points. Mm -hmm. So if you ask somebody why they did something, they can give you an answer, but why they really did it may be much more complex. And so 
Mm-hmm. You, you are getting answers, but you're not getting thoughtful answers. You're not getting the kind of answers that lead to discovery for both of you. So space in the guide allows somebody to go, that's a really good question. I hadn't thought of it that way. Let me see. Um, whereas if you flip it around and go, doctor, tell me about drug X. And they go, well, you know, drug X compared to drug Y. What an overconstructed guide will do is you'll cut them off and you'll say, well, we'll get to drug Y. I really want to hear about drug X right now. But in a naturalistic sense, if I ask about drug X and drug Y comes up, that in and of itself is very interesting to me. And I want to hear why. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear why this person sees a connection where maybe I didn't or maybe the guide doesn't. Right. So uh, a really good example of serendipitous discovery that has been now confirmed several times is interviewing doctors recently, oncologists about new treatments. And one oncologist said, you know, when it comes to like going back to the old treatments to chemotherapy, I really hate those medieval regimens. Now, a really full guide would have made me go, that's an interesting word, but I wouldn't have been able to do anything with it. Instead, I spent the next 10 minutes discussing with the guy, what do you mean by medieval and how does that speak to how you feel about the modern treatments? Well, that's something that I've now been asking every oncologist. And it turns out there's a pretty universal feeling that cytotoxic chemotherapy is very punishing and dated and inelegant and not something that these guys want to do, not just on a data level, but on a personal level. They feel bad about using it. It feels very old. How they feel about it is something that we could only explore with a guide that gave us room to explore that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So basically, from the standpoint of the moderator and the person who's facilitating this conversation, if you become married to these questions and like, I have to ask all these questions in this order, what you end up doing is off the respondent from saying something that they that could be really useful to the research objective. And then you're also not giving yourself the creative, because there is creativity needed for research. You're not giving yourself the creative room and platform to be able to like explore certain words that were used, like you said, you know, with the medieval example. So you're basically doing yourself a disservice as a moderator too, by just focusing on these questions, right? Yeah, it it becomes confirmation research with Mm -hmm. the illusion of discovery research. If I sit down to interview you and in the first 30 seconds, I make it clear that I have a list of 100 questions that we need to get through. You as a very smart person are going to give the goods to the guy who's asking you the questions and you're just going to answer those questions. If you start telling me a story and I cut you off and I say, well, we'll get to that later, there will be no more stories produced. And while production of narratives might seem trivial. Narrative is where we learn how facts relate to each other. So we're really good at extracting data in a context-free way. How do you treat this? How do you feel about this? What do you feel about this? How about this one? How about this one? But until you can connect them together, you don't actually know how they feel about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So, So again, the more granular the guide becomes, the more it gives this illusion that we're being more thorough, but what we're actually doing is we're turning this into, again, I think I've said it before, just a verbal questionnaire where you're only going to get answers to the questions you ask, and there's zero chance that you will find something you didn't already think about or know. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Something that I also want to ask advice on, because I know as someone with, you know, not as much research experience as you, something that used to make me really uncomfortable early on was silence during an interview. And that is where I really turned to the discussion guide because I was like, okay, well, if I hear silence, then I know I have all these other questions that I can just quickly jump to and, you know, it's not uncomfortable anymore. So I'm just wondering from your perspective and you're saying, you know, kind of not to just like rush through questions or be so dependent on the questions. Is that an appropriate use of the guide? Because now I'm understanding that like silence isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I want your take on what silence births when you let it be. Silence is definitely not a bad thing. I mean, that's a, that's a separate point. But I, I want to touch on something that you just introduced, which is the idea that the guide itself is sort of a third participant, mm-hmm. where if your interlocutor, as we call them, isn't forthcoming and you're getting a little nervous, you turn to the other participant who's the guide and that yeah. participant will can then interact with you and you can keep right. going forward that and you've told me that you were trained for example that if you didn't follow the guide you weren't doing your job that you had to ask mm-hmm. every question on that discussion guide verbatim and that's mm-hmm. what you were evaluated on well well yeah then you're not paying any attention to the person you're talking to they could be crying with rage and you'd be like i've got another question so yeah <laughs> I, I think that's psychologically for the interviewer that's definitely what happens when we tell them the most important thing and the thing that we're going to be looking at is did you ask every question on the guide mm-hmm. it's fair if you have six questions it's less fair if you have 60 you know and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if somebody says we've only got 18 questions if they have six subparts each you don't have eight questions Um, But but, you know, to the silence question, I'm going to run a thought experiment with you. So I'm going to ask a question and I want you to count to seven before you answer. So, Sonika, what is your favorite thing about your daughter's hair? Okay, I think that was seven. That was seven. You don't have to answer it. I was about to. No. And okay. So tell me what the the purpose of the experiment was. And then I'll give you insight into like where my thoughts were going in those seven seconds. Because I was ready to say something one second later. Right. But then it kind of changed. Yeah. So something that somebody taught me early on in my teaching days actually was never be afraid of silence because the sound of a brain working is silence. So it's our own nerves that kind of makes us want to fill that space in an interview. And this is this is sort of going beyond the guide. But again, if you don't have the space to let a conversation breathe, it's not a conversation. Many, many, many conversations have long pauses in them. And if it's a deep or profound question, I may signal to you like that's a good question. And then I may look off in a middle space. Very unlikely that I'm thinking about what I'll have for lunch that day. I'm probably thinking about the answer to your question. And we just have to trust that we've got an interlocutor, a, a co-participant who's going to come up with the goods. But we're we're showing them enough respect to let them think it through. We get nervous with silence. We tend to fill it. We tend to re-ask the question or rephrase the question or feel that somehow we haven't done a good job if this person can't just volley the ping pong ball straight back. But A good question or something that makes them reflect on actions that they've never reflected on before, 
that'll cause pause. That's a good thing. In fact, you should be really paying attention to what comes after the pause. Yeah, I think that that's really true, just based on the the little experiment we just ran right now. I think that the immediate thing that you want to say is one thing, but that sometimes when you give it some additional thought, you're able to add some color or like you just said, give yourself some additional time to think about something that you might not have thought about ever before. So that could, you know, produce a very interesting answer. A question that just popped up in my mind, though, is I know when we do research, we have questions sometimes where we want that immediate answer because we feel like that's the authentic answer. Like, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say this? And like, you just want that quick answer. So what is your advice there on like structuring questions, you know, some that might be better suited for a quick answer versus others that, you know, the silent or the pause can is important. Does that make sense? Well, it completely makes sense. And I think we're, we're looking for different things. First of all, I'm not an advocate of research nihilism. I'm not saying that people should be sent out without any guide whatsoever. I, I, I tend to focus on topic guides that say, these are the topics we need to cover. We need to understand how they feel about X, Y, that we need to understand how they feel about the possible new treatment algorithm that's coming up or something like that. But give me those as end objectives, understanding X or Y. Let me figure out what the best way to get to that is in terms of the order of events and how the naturalistic interview occurs. It is an interview. So you do get to tell people, well, that's interesting, but just to get back on track for a second, I've got a couple other things I need to ask you about. So so all of those things are, are, you know, super important. We don't want to put people out there without any sort of support. But 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 again, the important thing here is that silence, that experiment that we did, that was only seven seconds. If we want a like word association, what you're going to get is top of mind. Tell me the first thing you think of when you think of chemotherapy. Go. Uh, medieval. Next. Uh, you know, what, what do you think of targeted therapy? Mm-hmm. Like uh, elegant, you know, like it's that's word association stuff. But at some point, I'm going to want to go back and go, you know, it was really interesting that all the words related to chemo uh, really fell into two camps. One was power and the other was just torture. You know, uh, explain that to me. And then you'll get this love-hate relationship that we, I mean, I'm not coming up with that. We know the doctors, oncologists have a love-hate relationship with chemo. It works. It's been around forever. They've all been trained on it. When nothing else is there, they'll use it. But they cannot wait to retire it. People are able to feel multiple things. And you won't get that from a top-of-mind reaction. What you get is what's top-of-mind. That's very valuable, but if we're trying to change perception, we need more than just what's completely top of mind. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is that we can get those same answers. We can get to the same insight, like asking questions differently. It doesn't necessarily need to be like the word association, quick hit questions. We we were able to get that same insight in asking maybe like a longer question or having a longer discussion. Well, well, uh, I just want to correct one. It's a better insight, right? It's an actual insight, right? Right. So so when we, uh, just the term I used earlier, when we talk about stable versus unstable data in the social sciences, it's, it's really a replicability thing. If I ask you, are you likely to prescribe a drug reading XYZ input? 
and you tell me uh, 100% super likely to do it, um, we know that that's a bad predictor. Um, we know that the answer you gave me means something, but it doesn't actually mean you're going to prescribe the drug because intent to prescribe research is famously poor at predicting actual prescription in the future. And that's true for taste tests and stuff like that as well in consumer packaged mm-hmm. goods. Uh, New Coke tested better than old Coke, and it tested better than Pepsi, but nobody actually wanted new Coke, if you're old enough to remember that. Um, And the reason is we were testing the wrong thing. So you can tilt a taste test very easily towards basically the sweetest drink, because a sip of a drink, you will vote for the sweetest drink, but nobody buys a sip of Coke or a sip of Pepsi. Mm. But the other thing is we don't actually buy soda on taste. We kind of do, but we buy it on image. And so that's really what killed it. So discussion guides are a reflection of our own sort of preconceived biases before we go into the research. When we route discussion guides to everyone who's participating, all we're doing is adding on layers of people's biases and preconceived notions. And what we get back is very little in the form of discovery. And that's really where I called it a research crime. Like we do all this work and we spend all this money And all this time and we get back data that are neither predictive nor are they terribly informative except for to reflect our own biases so you know i I think you asked me a slightly different question but just to sort of bring it home as a field researcher what you're trying to do is both create a replicable interview but also create a naturalistic interaction in which the other participant brings their own feelings and beliefs to bear and and help shape the course of the discussion because that's very informative what they want to talk about first what's top of mind what do they bring up spontaneously what words do they use when they bring it up if all i'm doing is asking questions first of all you can throw the vocabulary out the window because we've primed every answer with the with the words that we've used i think i've gone past the original question there but there's clearly a lot that bothers me about overpacked discussion yeah. guides All right. That is all for episode two. Thank you for tuning in to why your discussion guide sucks. And hopefully this insight from Brad will help you become a better moderator of research moving forward. Yeah. Next time I'm looking forward to interviewing you a little bit about uh, your area of expertise. So, yep. Stay tuned, everyone. Looking forward to this. Yeah. Let's keep the BS out of behavioral science. Awesome. Yep. Thank you, guys.